0: Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for January 2018. I am writer hyphen that Dundee remake was never going to be real. Lee Zachariah and with me as always is.
1: Hello, Happy New Year. I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen Klaatu Barada Nikto hyphen Rochelle Semenovich. And
2: with us this month we
1: are very, very pleased to have...
2: Hi, I am (laughs) writer-lecturer-film-programmer-I-don't-have-a-theme-joke-Heloise-Ross. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, And, of course, as always, not going to break format, even though it's a new year. We're going to talk about the films we've seen this month, The Post, uh, which is the new film from Steven Spielberg. It takes us... Into the Washington Post, circa 1971, when new owner Kay Graham and editor Ben Bradley find themselves in possession of the Pentagon Papers, top secret documents that prove the U.S. knew the Vietnam War was always going to end in failure. Uh, Spielberg directs from a script by Liz Hannah and Josh Singer and casts Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks as the leads, two actors who are so used to winning Oscars, their combined surnames literally anagram to thanks peers. Rochelle, this film is clearly aiming for the heights of all the president's men. Does it get there?
1: Uh, I don't know. It's a really solid period piece and it makes a kind of complicated piece of history really interesting, easy to follow, dramatic. I think it's a really good film. I don't know if it's a great film, though. What do you think, Eloise?
2: Uh, I like what you say about how it makes a complicated piece of history into like something palatable and consumable, because I think it really does, but I think it maybe goes too far in being this really <clears throat> simply presented story that has, like, they've got the, what they come up against and then they defeat it, which is these these laws that they're not supposed to publish, the Pentagon Papers, and then it's all solved. <laughs> At the end, they just kind of move on, and I found that the presentation of that like, that they just get over it and then everything's hunky-dory afterwards was not so great. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, I think I feel the same. Uh, that was... Because this film should be everything I love. It's, like, all of it, the subject matter, the period, the directors, the stars on paper, it ticks all of my boxes... But in the end result didn't quite do it for me. And I think maybe because it's aiming for that incredible... Like, All the President's Men is one of the greatest films of all time. I feel that way about Good Night and Good Luck as well. You know, these... If you're going to make a film about journalists being great at journalism, you know, you'd better be making one of the great films of all time because there's a high bar. And um, this wasn't quite there. Like, I wasn't quite sure what the stakes were. Um, I wasn't quite sure who everyone was. I wasn't sure if Graham was Bradley's boss or subordinate because it keeps seeming to flip. I wasn't... Sure, she was meant to be actively involved or just a benefactor. Like the stakes for the country were very clear. The stakes for the characters were not.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I know um, when they say that the, I forget his name, but the, the guy who, you know, the whistleblower, that he, could, it was very dramatic, could go to prison for doing this. And then he said, I know, but then there was no follow-up, no repercussions. So we mm. didn't actually see what these stakes led to. And I thought that was a little bit... Of a flaw in the film, trying to present this really huge story um, of the 20th century with without really following through. Do you think it was really well made? Like in terms mm. of being a Spielberg production, you know, the camera was was really well positioned. The yeah. blocking was pretty incredible all the time. The editing was was really nice. So that was all all very well done. But yeah, it kind of forgot about this movie as soon as I saw it.
0: You know what the tagline should have been? Let's fix it in post. <laughs> right? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm very tired. I'm sorry.
2: I've got to
1: say, I did find this film inspiring. I, I thought it. Would, I sort of disagree with you. I think it was really clear these people could go to prison and that they were risking everything, mm. and I found it really inspiring and a little bit, sort of sad and nostalgic about the status of the newspaper and the way that is not the same as it was in 1971. But I also wanted to say that even though I started out this film thinking, oh fuck, not. Meryl Streep again. She's going to win an Oscar. She's going to be doing her thing. Yeah. I very quickly sort of fell in love with this character and I just loved that depiction of this woman who's kind of out of her depth. She's she's trying to sort of memorise what to say in a board meeting and then she goes into the board meeting. She doesn't even get to say what she wanted to say and she's finding her voice and I think it's a really great depiction of um, a character of a woman finding her place in a man's world and how scary that is. Mm. But, you know, I went and had a look at the real history and it wasn't quite as simple as that. She was a much more experienced, even a journalist
2: herself, which wasn't really in the story. Yeah, I didn't (laughs) get that sense at all. And that by that time she would have been able to have overcome her timidity in a boardroom Mm. setting. But, I mean, I do understand that it is a film and it needs to make a certain claim, right, which is that she was in a man's world and she had to struggle really difficult, through a really difficult time in order to exert her authority. By doing that, it was, you know, it was good enough. Mm. Um, you know, talking about historical accuracy and dramatic representation, interesting is interesting and useful, but not always, you know, relevant. Mm.
1: Our next film is Guillermo del Toro's *The Shape of Water*, an otherworldly fairy tale set in Cold War Baltimore in 1962. Sally Hawkins plays Elisa, a lonely mute but not deaf woman who works as a cleaner in a top security military laboratory. There she discovers and falls in love with an amphibious fishman captured from the Amazon and held captive by a cruel government official, Michael Shannon. Enlisting her friends, Octavia Spencer and Michael Jenkins, and aided by a conflicted double-agent scientist, Michael Stuhlbarg, Elisa hatches a plan to rescue the creature and set him free. Lee, did The Shape of Water work its magic on you?
0: Uh, It did. I uh, quite literally... Saw it this morning, ran out of the cinema and came here directly. Like I, my feet didn't touch pavement as I got <laughs> here. Uh, so I'm just, I'm still processing it. But this is a serious contender for one of Del Toro's best films. I think I just fell in love with this. It, it was everything he's interested in done about as well as they can be done. Like his, his love of monster movies distilled into into the platonic ideal of what a monster movie should be because they're romances. They were always romances. And he he just, he gets that so right. And I'm just so glad that, you know, I've been a Sally Hawkins fan for years and seeing her in this role just delighted me so much because she's so charismatic and she's so talented. And this was just, she got to do so much without a line of dialogue, basically. I, mm. um...
1: And she looks so beautiful. Mm. You know, the whole film is just, is, is so romantic.
0: You don't want to look away from her. Like, there's all this amazing CGI or, or you know, or practical effects and all this mm. amazing stuff going on. And you just want to look at Sally Hawkins the whole time. <laughs> or yeah. at least I do. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's true. I really, I loved this so much. It was so magical and he, uh, Guillermo del Toro, did everything so beautifully. I was really worried. Because I hated Crimson Peak so much. I just thought it was very, very silly. And clearly that's another project where he was creating a film by kind of reusing all of these genre tropes of the gothic melodrama. And it just did not go in that same direction. But this absolutely is a film that's beautiful in its own right. Um, and has really wonderful connections to the history. Sometimes it can be a little bit on the nose, using film clips or television clips um, from the past to uh, represent or speak to the issues at hand. But I loved the way that this film did this. Used mm. Alice Fay and Carmen Miranda, um, and then that tribute to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, mm. um, where yeah. they kind of she goes and she dances in black and white in her in Sally Hawkins' imagination. It was all just so beautiful. Yeah.
1: And the creature himself who... Um, Doug Jones? Yeah, Doug Jones. Yeah. I, they've made him, you know, through a mix of practical effects and visual um, after effects, special effects, they've made him both creepy and sexy at the same time. Oh, he was so sexy
2: yes. in his eyes. I just that couldn't take my eyes off off his eyes.
1: Apparently they spent heaps of time working out the correct butt-to-shoulder ratio to make him maximally <laughs> sexy. I was reading about the making of Of the suit, the um, sort of bioluminescent suit that he wears. Yeah, he's
2: just
0: butt-to-shoulder ratio yes. should be the new thigh gap. I think that should be the... Uh, what's the uh, BTS on that? <laughs> that fish monster?
2: Does, does anyone know... I mean, I'm sure it's been written somewhere, given the coverage this film has got, but whether... I mean, because it, he looks almost exactly like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm. Like, is mm-hmm. it exactly the same butt-to-shoulder mm. ratio, or is no. it exactly... No,
1: he's much sexier. I was... Oh, yeah, Yeah, they, <laughs> they referenced um, that in the costume design, but they really didn't want it to be exactly like that and I went and looked back at a clip from Creature from the Black Lagoon and he's not really attractive sure. in this way <laughs> Yeah, and he
2: moves in a different way as well, mm. um, absolutely so there's there's that, that's really nice
1: I mean I think it's, it's important that he's sexy because this film has sex in it and I mean it's one of the few Hollywood films that allows a, a sort of sweet and pure spirited heroine to have a sexuality mm. and to you know, she masturbates in the bath every morning. When's the last time you saw something? So Frank and just... I know, and
2: that's the, isn't that the first time we see her getting in the bath yeah. and masturbating? We yeah. have, have had no ability to connect with her before this. Yeah. Which is really important.
0: Well, a little over two years ago, we looked at the films of Don Hertzfeld on this show. Hertzfeld is a bit of a cult figure in the animation world with incredibly funny and profound short films like It's a Beautiful Day and World of Tomorrow, injecting some much-needed surrealism and existentialism back into cinema. Now he's back with World of Tomorrow, Episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Problems, in which young Emily is once again visited by a cloned future version of herself the clone's memory is deteriorating and she wants Emily Prime to help restore it. Uh, Eloise did World of Tomorrow need a sequel and did it live up to the original?
2: I don't know if I'm the, the best person to talk about this film. I loved it it's, it's beautiful, it's very stunning and the, the original was nominated for Best Animated mm. Short, was it not? Mm. Yeah, which it completely deserved I think I mean there's a lot of ideas in there um, and it is beautiful but I don't know if I have all that much to say about it beyond that I really liked in the... I forget if it was in the first or the second, the um, idea of an art gallery of anonymous memories. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That was a beautiful idea. But I haven't given it really all that much thought beyond that.
1: Yeah, well, I watched both these films last night, Mm. so thank you for introducing them to me. I think the second one is really similar to the first one, but in some ways it worked even better for me because... Mm. Emily is a little older. It's voiced by um, Herzfeld's niece, who was four when she did the original film, and you can hardly understand her some of the stuff. It's so funny. It's cute. Her cute little voice and her, you know, just so authentic.
2: Can I do other but golden round things? I have no idea what you're talking about. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Okay, that's um, true. I love that she was four, I didn't know that, but mm. she does sound like a four year old, and that just gives it a nice, um, yeah. a nice element of of realness, I suppose, in this animated world.
1: yeah, yeah. but the the second film, I guess she's was six or six seven. Or seven yeah. So you can understand her a little bit better, but she's still got that childlike naive mm. um, thing going on. And I think this film really deals with our desire to hold on to memory um to preserve every single you know photograph or moment Mm -hmm. and for what purpose when are we going to go back and look at all this stuff I'm obviously projecting my own dramas with trying to back up my computer this week. You'll <laughs> 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 be visited by future
0: Rochelle. Who will, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what, what what really to say about this either because, I mean, it feels very weird to see something so esoteric, having something as standard as a sequel. But, but I, I still love it. Like, I love this corner of Hertzfeld's universe and I enjoy spending more time in it. So even though, it, like, the first one felt really like a self-contained thing, I, I don't mind spending a bit more time in Emily's world so
1: next up is Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World inspired by real events around the kidnapping of 16-year-old John Paul Getty III in Rome in 1973 and based on John Pearson's book Painfully Rich: The Outrageous Fortunes and Misfortunes of the heirs of J Paul Getty the film is a tense crime thriller with an unforgettable monster at its heart Christopher Plummer plays the boy's billionaire grandfather who shockingly refused over a period of six months to pay the ransom, while Michelle Williams is his distressed but dignified mother. Romain Duris plays the Italian kidnapper and Mark Wahlberg is the ex-CIA agent employed by Getty Senior to deal with the matter is this a film worth paying up for
0: <laughs> nice uh yeah well it depends if you're uh, if you're a highly paid male star then you've got the money to burn if you're an underpaid female star then uh maybe you want to be a bit more careful with your money because you're clearly not getting <laughs> your due um yeah this i mean this film's probably better known for its behind the scenes stuff not just the reshoots with. You know, Mark Wahlberg getting way more money than Michelle Williams but obviously the, the thing that kicked all this mm. off which is Kevin Spacey being cut out and I, I, I think a big part of this film's appeal is trying to spot the joins, trying to see the <laughs> reshoots, you know, where did they edit Spacey out and where's Christopher Plummer uh, and like when I saw the film, the reshoots had taken place only a few weeks earlier like mm. I, I actually spotted Ridley Scott when I was walking into the cinema, he was still shooting some stuff at the end of the film <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's like I think it's a good film. I think it's genuinely tense if you don't know the story, and I did not. Honestly, Plummer is just perfect as Getty. Like he's he's really really good. I think mm. you know Michelle Williams is is the highlight. She's one of my favorite actors working at the moment, and she gives this brilliant Hepburn esque performance and really centers the whole thing. Um, look, I you know I've I've been felt a bit hit and miss with a lot of Ridley Scott's recent stuff, and this is I enjoyed this more mm. than most of his stuff. Eloise you haven't seen it have you?
2: Uh, I haven't seen it no but I'm interested in what you think about Christopher Plummer's Oscar nomination, uh, Golden Globes and uh, nomination and Oscar nomination. Do you think it was I, I haven't seen it so please tell me if I'm being overly judgmental but I feel like it's a bit Hollywood industry congratulating mm. itself mm. Um, oh, oh, um, for yeah. being so aware um, and being <laughs> so active on getting rid of Kevin Spacey and,
0: But awards um, are always about the story behind the performance <laughs> as much as the performance. <coughs>
2: it's like, true there. but yeah. I I'm just—I hated it so much. I mean, the Oscar nominee slate is much more, I guess, open and diverse than the Golden Globes one was. Mm. But when the Golden Globes came out, I thought, you know, they've been talking the talk about getting rid of, you know, men and not giving men the space to be entitled, but but not walking the walk.
1: Mm, it is a great performance. Okay. I think it probably would have got some attention, but. Uh, there's no doubt it's getting a lot more attention than it otherwise would have. I, I mean, that's the same with
2: every scandal yeah. around yeah. every film. Mm. And If someone tries, you know, the same. If a film gets censored, then mm. it obviously gets more attention. So I suppose it's only to be expected. Yeah,
0: but a lot of uh, a lot of callbacks to our uh, the filmmaker we'll be talking about Christopher Plummer in a new film, mm. uh, and we'll be talking about you know Sound of Music later and we're just talking about the new Spielberg film he's literally casting his remake of oh, no, West Side no. Story at the moment so uh, yeah you picked a Topical Filmmaker but Jumping the Gun sorry forget <laughs> that edit it out
2: well Christopher Christopher Plummer is very handsome in The Sound of Music
0: mm. and all the money in the world
2: okay Silver Fox <laughs> <laughs>
0: Towards the end of last year, the big news in the film world was the rumoured acquisition of 20th Century Fox's film assets by Disney. Murdoch wanted to divest himself of his company's film assets, and with a deal in the tens of billions, there weren't many companies in a position to step up and fork out. When the Disney deal was announced, there were celebrations in exactly two places, the marbled bathrooms of shareholders whose stocks had soared, and the corners of the internet in which comic book fans realised that all of their favourite Marvel characters could now play in the same sandbox. Iron Man could meet the Fantastic Four, Wolverine could hang with Hulk, Skin, the X-Man character with six feet of extra skin, could team up with Ghost Rider, the Flaming Skull Spirit of Vengeance with not nearly enough skin. And uh, thank you, Google, for that last one. That took a (laughs) bit of searching. Um... For everyone else, this deal was met with trepidation. Monolithic media empires are big enough already without them merging into one gigacorp. And the fallout will extend far beyond your favourite IPs. It's about a year until this deal is finalised. So as we stare down the barrel of this merger, how are we feeling about this?
2: The only thing I um, have to say, really, that bothers me is this discussion that the original Fox lot. In Century City, may be sold, given to real estate developers or even another company like Apple, which would mean a huge loss of history, physical, tangible history, artifacts, spaces of memories. And all of that, I mean, the the new Ampus Museum is opening this year, I think, or next year, which will be able to um, house, surely, some of this history. But I imagine it has most of what it's what it's taking. And I don't think it will be necessarily what's physically on the lot, but rather the fact that this space, yeah. you know, was the site of so much going back a century or longer. Um, that's what's really a concern to me. I, there's all of these ums and ahs, like it won't be able to happen because of land use rights or whatever. I don't mm. really understand. But that was just a thing that kind of um, made me feel quite um, sad for a possible loss of what's happening. Um, just
0: the on, on the studio lot thing, I read a couple of conflicting things about that. The, one of the things I read said that the studio lot will probably stay with the Murdoch wing of Fox. Which is the only time Murdoch retains control of something is a good headline because, of course, Disney wouldn't need to. Lots so God knows what they do with it. Although, as you say, land use right, so maybe they just have to keep it. But from what I understand, it's it's probably going to remain a studio.
1: But aren't they going to need more more space to be making all the content that they're going to have to produce for all their you know their new services. I don't know. I mean there is going to be a streamlining and a mm. and a kind of collapsing of a lot of um, services I imagine but they're well, going they can't to have to produce make a as lot many of content. films
0: as they used to. Mm. Surely because I mean Fox is happy to compete with Disney if they've got a good product but Disney isn't Mm. going to want to compete with Disney they're not going to put put out two films on the same weekend so I think just inevitably this is going to lead to fewer films and Mm. less diversity I mean not that Hollywood was that diverse but still
2: well there's already fewer films being made now than were being made 20 years ago let alone 50 Mm. 60 years ago and the reason you know that we got narrative development and genre development and all of that is because studios were competing Mm. with each other Mm. but even though they were enemies and did compete they also shared creative ideas. They shared, you know, rough cuts of their films in order to kind of suggest this is where we're going, which was all really nice, but that's not going to happen at all in this case. So, yeah. so we're, you know, what's going to happen with with the creative industry?
0: Yeah, and, and the thing that, that really concerns me, I mean, I don't mind a multi-billion dollar company making tentpole films. Like, that that's, that doesn't bother me at all. The thing that really bothers me is the reports from last month that Disney had cut some really tough deals with exhibitors for The Last Jedi, And if they're soon to be the only game in town, what are they going to do to theatres if they want to play the latest Star Wars, the new Marvel film, the new Avatar, the new Pixar? If they've got everything that makes money, I don't know how theatres are going to be able to make enough money to compete. I don't know how high ticket prices are going to go. You know, Disney isn't going to want to implode the industry that supports them, but at the same time, you know, they're really going to put the squeeze on, I think, and that's going to, you know... Exhibitors and us, the the punter will will be the ones who feel. The Surely
2: there should be some sort of protection against that sort of thing happening, um, like Disney having a hold on all of the exhibitors. I mean, this is what happened when vertical integration was dissolved, yeah. right? Like this was there was a protection t- in some degree of of our right to go and see things mm. um, in, with some kind of freedom of choice so maybe i don't know i'm I'm just being hopeful um but i'm also skeptical so who knows but
1: isn't this just an acknowledgement that the future for movies as we know it is online rather than in cinemas so it's very much about getting that content online streaming um and maybe maybe the the old Style um, movie theater is going to become I don't know less of a less of a big deal mm. in this model for new
2: releases possibly. Mm. Oh, they're still trying for event cinema in some ways, but maybe that's that means that there's going to be fewer productions. But that's what they want because mm. they want it to be an event mm. um, rather than an everyday thing. Possibly.
0: Yeah, I think Spielberg said a few years ago that there will be tiered ticketing soon, where you'll pay fifty dollars to see avengers and you'll pay ten dollars to see ladybird uh i think he was probably on the right track with that but i think the future is Lady Bird comes to netflix and you mm, watch it at home, mm. and you go out to the cinema like it's the opera or the theatre. Yeah. It's an event. You go, you leave the house to see the film that cost $300 million to make. Mm.
2: Um, I don't like that. No, me neither. <laughs> that doesn't make me happy at all. <laughs> I wonder if this
1: acquisition is going to mean that other companies are going to consolidate and try and join forces to. Um, be able to compete because you know Disney is just becoming such a mega juggernaut Mm. I mean less competition is is a bad thing Mm. I think we can say that without any qualification Mm.
0: so if we register our displeasure now that we might be able to stop I
1: think so (laughs) (laughs) all right
0: Eloise who have you selected for your Hellas for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month
2: I've selected Robert Wise, who is probably most famous for directing and winning Oscars for West Side Story and The Sound of Music, um, but has made so many more films. Um, He directed 40 in total, actually.
0: Yes, yes, I know.
2: (laughs) Prolific. It's uh,
0: all I've done with my month. Um,
2: Yeah, I feel both proud and also a little bit sorry for making everyone watch so many (laughs) Robert Wise films, but... You
0: know, I like I grumble, but I was secretly delighted. I uh, I got to sit down and watch. Like I love that era of like nineteen forties B movies, and I was just so delighted that I just had an excuse to watch them all, like for days on end. It was it was glorious, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I've, I've always loved Robert Wise because I love West Side Story, and I grew up watching Sound of Music, and I love Star Trek motion picture, and uh, you know, and seeing his name pop up on Citizen Kane, I was like, this guy's amazing. So I've always been fascinated with him, but. Until you selected him, I did not realise how many films he made and how many different types of films he made.
2: Yeah, um, he is has been criticised by a few people for not really being an auteur, for not having a style that he just, I guess, phoned it in or something. I don't know where this comes from, but, you know, there are certain people who believe in the auteur theory. Um, But he is not one of those people. I think you can look at his work and see themes, um, both, you know, cinematic themes and also narrative themes and character themes throughout. But overall, he was just really able to use the form to make whatever kind of movie he wanted or was called for. Mm. The other person who sort of did that at that time was Henry Hathaway made a lot of sh- different genre kind of pictures um, without any clear mark. Um, there were a few around, but yeah, um, he's kind of a special guy in that way.
0: Yeah I mean he brought films in on time and under budget and just became this reliable hand where you know immediately he was the studio started you know really relying on him to bring in their product. And he's this really technically proficient guy who knows how to. What does this need? I'll do it. And it's sort of the opposite of what we think of auteurism. but there were little signatures that that that, that crept through. Like there there is real artistry in the technical.
2: Oh, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, you're right. He um, he came to Hollywood in 1931. I think he was 19 because um, he went to college, but then it was the Great Depression, and his parents couldn't afford. To for him to go anymore, so he went to his brother was working at RKO, and he went there, and so he started kind of working carrying prints. That was his job. He had to carry prints to projection rooms. The so singer. That, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Oh, my God, you look so serious, now. I didn't realise that you were making a joke. <laughs> Excellent. Um, anyway, Prince may come up later in the discussion. But anyway, he got a job in the editing suite um, and he was a sound editor for a bit. So you can see that he completely has just been observing how films were made and what went into it um, from the very beginning. And his first, well, I suppose he had a few kind of, he directed a few scenes on films like he famously directed some scenes in The Magnificent Ambersons mm. when Orson Welles had gone to South America and could no longer finish the picture and the studio didn't want to release it as it was. So Robert Wise had to direct a few scenes and a new ending, I believe, um, and he edited it. And he felt bad doing so, I think. But at the same time, he said that it wasn't a film that was going to work in the the way that Orson Welles had left it. And so he just did the job because the studio asked him to. Um, So you can see he's definitely this, you know, reliable person. Same with Curse of the Cat People, which was his first directing credit. He took over from Gunther von Fritz he'd only directed like half the screenplay in the allocated time. Mm -hmm. And so they said, Robert Wise, you've got to direct it. And he felt, he didn't want to, he felt like he was going behind um, someone's back. Um, But at the end of the day, they said, look, if you don't do it, someone else will, so you may as well. So he was very much just did everything, I suppose, for the art um, rather than for, for himself, I think. Um, And you can see that coming through in that, that, all of his films are definitely the best that they could be without being particularly his in any way.
1: Do you think he was almost too um, sort of versatile and practical? And so he's he's done so much, there's no sort of... I mean, before we did this show, I didn't really realise that he'd directed so many films I actually quite like and Mm. love, in fact. He's not one of those names that just comes up as, you know... These sort of famous directors who have a body of work, and yet he really did have a body of work. It was just so diverse, and he was able to do so many different things, from sound to editing to directing.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you can see that come through in all of his mm. films that he, you know, as a director, was completely in control of all of those um, other facets of his his work too, which some directors were not to an extent. Um, but. You know, I mean, that's just kind of what's so great about him, um, and it's the, maybe the fault of the canon or the academy for not um, allowing people to view him in his in that way, in that coherent way. But after our show, after our show, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're changing the canon. That's right.
0: That's what the show's all about. <laughs> but like, I really think he would have like made it, maybe faded into obscurity or become one of those anonymous technical directors had he not had films not come along because he made like the setup in 1949 which is amazing it's told in real time it came out before high noon it has the structure and tone of a B movie but you know it's a really great film he he really connects everyone physically in these different spaces it was it influenced Scorsese on when he made Raging Bull and he made, like that script it's something like Day the Earth Stood Still in 51 everyone on day the earth stood still thought they were making another forgettable B movie science fiction and only after it came out did they all go oh this is really great but he directs them all with that same sort of i guess really unpretentious here is what this scene needs right now and and like like we were saying before it doesn't mean there's no artistry in there like he, he he loves silhouettes on walls in his film noirs in the setup he loves big dramatic silhouettes cast on walls behind actors and yeah there's... yeah
2: he really does he began his directing career working with Val Luton who made cat people um, and then produced a number of other kind of B horrors um, at RKO and Val Luton had this real knack for presenting a uh, like a psychological horror, where you didn't show a horror you didn't show a monster, you just sensed it. You saw a shadow rather than seeing a monster and you heard a noise rather than seeing somebody scream or whatnot. Um, And you can see that come, and that's definitely something that's acknowledged in a lot of the writing about Wise, but you can see that come through in so many of his films. Even films that aren't particularly about a horror or a haunted house will have shadows on walls Mm. and empty rooms like that that suggest a kind of horrific space or a haunted space. So you can definitely see that come through in where it's, you know, that visual style um, but he has a great obsession—well, not obsession—I don't know—with using you know visuals in this really expressionistic way mm. um, that you can see come through. The setup was made as a B film, and it probably still is, but it kind of hit all the right buttons and was really successful. And I think Born to Kill was maybe the first, it, or that was also made as a B film, but people didn't like that. People thought it was too mean spirited.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's you don't really like anyone in the film. Everyone's really unlikable, and. the Dialogue's not great, but it's oh, uh, it's, it's just great. funny. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love Born to Kill. I've seen it so many times. I think it's like terrific, and I think Claire Trevor is incredible. I like this line that in it's kind of a very noir line. I think the the main character's friend and possibly queer lover. um That's the subtext. Says, has it occurred to you neither of us? Neither of us looks like a scoundrel, do we? <laughs> um, you know, but of no, course okay, they that's both a great are.
0: Line, yeah.
2: Um, so there's some really good stuff in there, but that people didn't really like. Even though it was very well done and Claire Trevor had some stature, that people didn't like it. They thought it was too horrible. But the setup was was what really impressed people. Yeah, you're right.
0: There are there are some great lines in these these films. Like in Mystery in Mexico, I got a big laugh out of uh, after being caught kissing another woman. The man says, "I was looking for your brother," and the woman says, "My brother hides in some mighty strange places." <laughs> 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 but what? Film won you over to Wise. When did you first notice him?
2: Um well probably much like you I you both. I had seen Robert Wise films, West Side Story I'd seen as a kid, The Sound of Music I watched all the time um with my family, and I didn't realise until recently that the Baroness is played by Eleanor Parker who is now, I know, from a bunch of other films that I've watched um, as a scholar, but I didn't realise that, that that was who that was. Anyway, um, <laughs> exactly. that happens with all sorts of films, I suppose. You rediscover that someone's in them. But So I had, no, had known his films but but not known the name yeah. because when you go to film school, you learn about Hitchcock, you learn about Tarantino, um, you don't learn about, about Robert Wise, I guess. But when I was doing my PhD... In 2012, I discovered I Want to Live, and that film just changed my life, and I wrote a book chapter on it, and I wrote part of my thesis on it, and then I, I don't think I went after the Robert Wise name, but I just came across other films that he'd made, like The Setup and Executive Suite. Mm. And Odds Against Tomorrow um, and I kind of put them all together and realised that they were all rubber wise um, and so that's it wow. but, but I Want to Live is a stunning film and I know mm. that you liked it a lot Lee
0: I did, I did I did send you an excited email <laughs> after that one I was like I don't want to spoil the podcast but holy crap
2: every time I watch it I kind of get something new out of it but it has a really interesting story so it was based on the execution or the trial and execution of Barbara Graham Um, in 1953 I think or 1955 and the film was made in 58. The controversy with Barbara Graham was that she was a mother and she never admitted to the murder of this woman. She went on a heist with two other men and this woman was killed and the men said that Barbara Graham did it and she never publicly said that she had done it and this is presented in the film but she had been a prostitute, she had been convicted of perjury before, she was kind of a uh, a party girl, you know, and it starts by by presenting her in this jazz club. Um, so she loves jazz, so that's kind of aligns her with this life of sin. Um, but she it still was never really certain whether she committed this murder or not, so it was a bit of a controversial execution. Mm. I guess it's impossible to watch the film without su- seeing that Robert Wise is suggesting that she was in fact innocent mm. and that this is a film that is against capital punishment. But when it was released, I think that the Los Angeles police force and some of the press said that he had he was being really irresponsible in presenting her case this way, that she was in fact innocent when they knew that she was guilty and that how could he be doing this to the justice system and that, you know, they were all very angry. But I think if it comes through, it's really just an anti capital punishment film yeah. rather than saying whether she was guilty or innocent or not. But, you know, you have to have a protagonist who is uh, relatable, I suppose, yeah. and likable. And Susan Haywood is. Um, I love it, and I love that it's a, a crime film and a court film and a melodrama, mm. but it's also a noir. And the way that he kind of controls the moods in that film from it being like a jazz party film to being a, a procedure procedural in the courtroom, to being this really stark, kind of sparing execution drama in the final twenty-five minutes is is incredible. Mm. Like it's just such a an experience that film.
0: Absolutely, it's uh, it's great. It's one of, one of the type one of those films that you want to discover when you are going back through someone's filmography because I hadn't even heard of it before I saw it, and I was just yeah, it's extraordinary.
2: Yeah, well, Susan Hayward won Best Actress. That's right. So, so you know, that's a, a great. I guess appraisal
0: of that film. It's also, uh, just again, going back to his technical proficiency and the the way in which he will do something because it seems like the best way to tell the story of a moment. And it, it's accidentally this incredibly innovative thing. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, Three Secrets, the opening with the kid in the plane. You don't actually see him, but you hear him saying, Mummy, when are we getting home? And then you slam cut into the crash. Or Executive Suite, which starts with a point of view shot as he goes down an elevator, sends a telegram, has a heart attack, dies, you know, it's this incredibly lengthy, elaborate shot. Yeah, I mean, maybe that came from working with Wells, and maybe, I forget, when was uh, when was um, Touch of Evil? 58. 58, there you go, he did it first. And his buddy Wells must have seen that.
2: There was a suggestion that, you know, and Wise has said publicly that he was influenced by Wells, and particularly in using sound as an expressive form because Wells was, as we all know, very into using sound. He was, you know, he come from radio. Mm. So was Robert Wise because he was a sound editor to begin with. But he has publicly said that working with Wells on Citizen Kane had definitely given him kind of more insight into how to use sound in his films and that it was so important. And it absolutely is. You can look at any film that Wise made and kind of notice really exciting uses of effective sound. Um, it's one of the things that I really love about him because I'm a sound theorist. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, one of the, the reasons that I love him so much. But I think the, the fact that in, in Citizen Kane we see Charles Foster Kane's life and we kind of hear about him via a whole bunch of other people, um, that that's the same thing that kind of happens in Executive Suite where we hear about this yeah. man who dies in the first scene. Um, Because he's dead already, so we can't experience, you know, his life through his subjective point of view. We have to hear about him from a whole bunch of other people. But that film, you know, whether or not it was influenced by Wells or not, started a new kind of genre, the business procedural Mm -hmm. drama, um, which a lot of filmmakers then went on to to kind of copy. Um, But it's so tense which is amazing, which just kind of speaks to Robert Wise's ability to use the camera and to use sound design. It was really a remarkable film because there was no score, not even a, a credit sequence score. It just started um, in silence um, with a bunch of city sounds like car horns and church bells and motors, which is another thing we hear in West Side Story, which of course has the score of the credit sequence, but when it cuts to the... The actual um, aerial shot of the city, mm. there's no sound. It's just you can hear in the yeah. distance the car sounds and the street sounds. The same thing with Aussie Gates' Tomorrow. So you can see these uses of sound coming up through his career.
0: I love the I love the local angle, by the way, just uh, looking at Until They Sail, 1957, Gene <coughs> Simmons, Joan Fontaine, Paul Newman, Piper Laurie and the de- debut of Sandra D. Mm. It's about American soldiers stationed in New Zealand during the war romancing local women even closer to home, The Desert Rats, 1953.
2: I know, About Bud for- Tingwell. Bud Tingwell and,
0: <laughs> and Chips rapidity Like yes. Rats of Tobruk, there alongside Richard Burton and James Mason. Mm. Oh, such a good war film.
2: Yeah, and that must have been filmed in Australia because of the Australian cast, I imagine. No, I think I think
0: it was overseas. I think okay. they flew them all out.
2: All right, because yeah. Until They Sail was also filmed in Hollywood. I think he right. went. he scouted some locations in New Zealand and he wanted it to be in colour, But they couldn't afford it at that point, and so I think that they, yeah, they just rebuilt the sets um, in Hollywood. But until they sail is really nice, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's not really a widely known film, Mm. Um, even though it has such a great cast and it should be seen by more people. But it's one of those. I mean, it's a. I I kind of have realized as well that Robert Wise is a little bit of a women's picture director, Mm. even though none of the films he's made would really has been classified as women's pictures, but he he always has a sensitivity towards women, the women characters, whether or not they were the leads or not. Um, but this is a really incredible film because it 's about four sisters, and one of them is you know the kind of the loose woman I suppose she 's been married and divorced and she goes to when she goes to auckland she goes to so they 're in wellington and she goes to Auckland, which is the bad city <laughs> um, and you know she um, gets a boyfriend and all that but he 's a director who 's really sympathetic with what women go through and there 's this amazing line in that film where paul newman who Um, Is a Navy officer. He says, I think it's him, he says to one of the sisters, It must be really hard for you to sit here and for everyone to be gone. Like this acknowledgement that Mm. what women went through in the war was also really, really terrible, which even though it was a subtext in quite a lot of other war films at the time, I don't think was so explicitly said in a lot of films. So that was really amazing. But you have this real attention to what women go through. And in I Want to Live, you kind of see that even though Barbara Graham is this character who has done imperfect things and made bad decisions, that she was, you know, in that place because I guess society kind of put her there. So mm. that's what's really brilliant, I think, about a lot of films, looking at Robert Wise's career as a whole.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's, We were talking about running times just earlier uh, before we started recording, and I thought it was interesting that uh, when, when I started watching the early ones, I was like, yeah, these are an hour long each. I'm really going to get through these. And then the later ones are three hours long each. And so on average, he makes two-hour films. But um, he certainly, like those epics really, you know, it's around the time that he makes West Side Story and then a few films later, Sound of Music. And suddenly he's this director of epics mm. and he makes films like The Sand Pebbles and Star and uh, The Hindenburg, you know, really big films. And suddenly he's this entirely different director that almost David Lean-like.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I Look, I don't know why he made really long films. I, I haven't come across anything that said why. Um, but obviously he was just so... And he's not the only person who makes long films, as we know, but obviously he was so respected and you I have not read a single bad word about him. I can tell you that um that he must have just been a generous director when he started directing in the Curse of the Cat People. he took acting lessons so that he would know better how to res- like um, work with his actors. Wow. so you can see just from that very beginning that he had this like immense respect for the craft that he was involved with but that he was so good at working on big productions that they, in fact, kind of called him almost out of retirement to direct Star Trek The Motion Picture, Mm -hmm. which he'd never seen or come across before because it was such a huge project and there were so many voices and they knew it was going to be a disaster unless someone amazing kind of directed it. So clearly he could just kind of do whatever he wanted. Yeah, Um,
0: (laughs) true. And by the way, I just like Star Trek The Motion Picture gets a lot of flack it's you know, considered a missed start by Star Trek or some Star Trek fans. I, I think it's great. I think it's like the 2001 of the Star Trek uh, films and certainly the most cinematic of all of them, I would it's say. It's much as I love the later it's ones. It's the
2: only thing to do with Star Trek that I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but I really I like it. I mean, he he's, has such a, as we've acknowledged, great use of light and shadow, um, black and white. But when you get to his colour period... He uses colour so starkly and he'll often have bright, not quite fluoro, but just really standout colours. Sometimes in the Andromeda strain, for instance, he'll like have a red background and someone wearing an entirely red outfit in the frame. Um, And then he'll go to the same thing, but with green or the same thing, but with orange. And that kind of happens in Star Trek. You can Mm -hmm. see is that my favorite kind of comparison, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit funny uh, or or maybe you wouldn't like me so much to compare it to Star Wars, but you have to, because it was, you know, Star Trek was going to be a TV (laughs) series until Star Wars came out. And then they realized that they had to do it, but they go through I don't know if they call it the same thing, but they go through um, they go light speed, but the light speed the depiction of light speed instead of just being white stars is is rainbow colored yeah I love it, it's just so beautiful. I
0: actually remember I had the novelization before I saw the film, and like it was all that sort of like rainbow colored and I was fascinated by that as a kid, just staring at those colors which which came from him, but I love that having now seen the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg does the same thing pretty much that Star Trek The Motion Picture does because in his director's cut, which is the only version I watch now, it's much superior to the original cut. I'm glad he got his version out there. There's a shot of the Enterprise where like, Kirk's on a shuttle and Scotty's taking him up and he gets to stare admiringly at his old ship. That shot goes for six minutes. It's just Jerry Goldsmith's score, which is great. great Shots score. of the Enterprise, which are great, and Kirk looking admiringly. And I just love that he went, you know what, what, this is going to be six minutes. This is like, a lot of his films have overtures. And this yep. is like an overture. Even even actually on the disc, Star Trek has an overture. And this is like one that comes in the middle of like, 20 minutes into the film, yes. pretty much, where you just get to, yeah. And, and it's great. And he And he doesn't quite do that with the Hindenburg, but there are a lot of similar shots. It felt like the admiring staring at this big airship.
2: And I wonder as well whether that is part of, Robert Wise's obsession with... I keep saying obsession, I don't know if it's true, but, you know, that he really thought it very valuable to inject a film with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because so many of his films are about time and about delay and about anticipation and about waiting, and some of them will show images of a clock. Like so many of these films, it's not even worth reeling off a couple because, like, what's the point? I feel like almost every one of these films is, deals with time in some way or shows a clock or a close-up. But often they won't be accompanied by that really typical sound of the ticking, which I think is super valuable. Don't get me wrong. But when you remove the, the sound from the shot of an- the clock, which mm. induces anxiety. It's like an extra layer of anxiety. It's so much more powerful that mm. he'll do that. And I think that doing that kind of thing, like cutting to a um, point of view shot, of the Hindenburg or the ship in Star Trek or in, you know, a number of other films or just kind of cutting back and forth or in something like Audrey Rose, for instance, mm. cutting to an exterior of the apartment. That kind of thing, like, stopping the action for a bit and just introducing a sense of waiting is, yeah. like, so powerful. And maybe that's why his films are a bit long because he just feels like it's so important to include those kind of moments. Oh, Audrey Rose was incredible.
1: Oh, yeah, this was an amazing film I'd never... um come across before and um I I didn't know what it was trying to do at first I'm I'm like okay so this is a story about a little girl who this strange man's following her she's happy her parents are happily married this strange man's following them and it turns out he thinks that she's the reincarnation of his daughter who died in a car crash and it's just so weird and creepy but then it goes somewhere you don't really expect Because it seems from a number of Robert Wise films that he's not entirely negative about the supernatural or about the possibilities for, for, of ghosts being benign rather than, than evil. Would you say that?
2: Um, yeah, I haven't thought about it in that way. But I think, yeah, you could be right that he um, he's never critical of mm. that kind of belief mm. system and so for. The, the film is so interesting. I, I Yeah, I don't think it's categorizable really. Mm. Um, but if you just look at it in, you know, you can think that he's being very sympathetic towards the girl, to mm. Ivy, this 11-year-old mm. or 10-year-old at the time. But it's, it's really brilliant, I
1: think. And even like Curse of the Cat people has that sort of similar <laughs> kind of, I don't know, dancing with the supernatural in a way, an unexpected way.
2: Yeah, I remember reading that his version of the haunting have you seen the haunting Mm, yeah was obviously adapted from a shirley jackson story and that shirley jackson rather than writing in a typical way of the horror story which was to present psychological anguish bound in the supernatural that kind of left a loophole for reality which is how most horror Mm. stories go that shirley jackson wrote of anguish bound in reality that left a loophole for supernatural explanation, um, which is, has, has been suggested that that was something that Val Luton did as well. So if Jackson was influenced by Luton and then obviously Wise was influenced by Luton as well and then went and told this Jackson story that that was, was really interesting. But he, he always, I guess, suggested that the supernatural was something that was an out for people, I suppose, or a comfort, rather than something that was unsettling, maybe. Mm. And that obviously that is a really nice
0: way of watching a movie. So I think uh, certainly something I'm very guilty of on this show and the temptation is that when you're so familiar with the classics, you want to talk about all the ones you haven't seen. And so, you know, we've obviously been focusing on all these, like, amazing discoveries. But we do have to mention the classics. I mean, he directed The the Day the Earth Stood Still, The Sound of Music, West Side Story. I mean, these are canonised classics that have changed cinema.
2: Um, yeah, so the day the Earth stood still was had a budget of one million, which was, I think, the biggest budget for a sci-fi film at that time. Mm, really? um, so even though it was kind of just a little picture that that made this great splash, um, they definitely suggested that it was going to be doing something really important. Um, and that Robert Wise suggested it was really important that he have the amount of money to give the backgrounds, the matte shots, that kind of thing, and to make it a really believable story. And you know, it stands up. It's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful and very wise film. It's a plea against um, paranoia. It's, it's so pacifist. It's humanist. Yeah. I think it really stands up.
2: Um, yeah, um, and Robert Wise is famously, if you look at so many of his films, even the ones that aren't directly about war politics, he was very anti-war, anti-military. He didn't like that at all, um, and so he was a big pacifist. So you can see this coming through in this film. Um, you know, Claude Rains was meant to be Klaatu, but he was busy. Oh, wow. Or he was filming something else. And Wise has said that it's great that they had um, Rennie because he no one knew who he was. So he had this weird, uncanny quality. because, mm, Like an alien. Yeah, <laughs> because people didn't know his face. Yeah. So it really gave the film, you know, an up.
1: Yeah, and I read that the spaceship was um, designed in collaboration with Frank Lloyd Wright. Hello. It's very—it's a very I didn't stylish know that, I film.
2: Yeah, 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 I can definitely see that. Um, that's brilliant. Uh, it's really, yeah. It's it's just wonderful, I think, and I love that the ending. The spaceship flies off into the s- starry sky, gets really small, and then it turns into the text that says the end, and comes <laughs> back into and comes um, to the fore forefront of the frame. I really love that because it suggests, you know, maybe it is the end of the story, or maybe there's more to come. I don't know.
0: Yeah, uh, and yeah, West Side Story is one of my favorite films of all time, and rewatching it again it's just I mean it is one of the perfect musicals it is uh it is an amazing film
2: um you just watched it for the first time I believe Rochelle I did what do you think I think I may have come to it too late
1: in history it didn't work its magic on me um I found it really slow Mm -hmm. and it didn't sort of touch me I guess it's it's very much like a I mean, it's very cinematic, but it's very much like a filmed musical. And, you know, so you have these gangs kind of doing balletic fighting, I suppose. So you really have to go with it. And I think these days in a musical, we expect a lot more to happen in the course of a song. But here, as you know, you said before, the the camera just... And we just watch this person sing an entire song And you have to be quite patient with it Mm. But I can see that it's a very important and seminal film And Natalie Wood's beautiful in the... um the Juliet role, but yeah. yeah, it made me want to go and watch Baz Luhrmann's um. Romeo and
2: Juliet. Oh, you can't fault <laughs> Bas Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I have to say, I adore it. It's interesting that you say it is slow, because it is, and you know, you, we have to acknowledge that films made 50 years ago are slower than films made now. But interestingly, I think Robert Wise, because it was co-directed, or some of this songs were directed by the um, choreographer Jerome Robbins. I think that a lot of the songs are in fact rather than just being like a filmed kind of performance there is quite a bit of editing not mm. not anywhere near as much as someone like um, or like the musical version of Chicago for instance mm. which is which is very fast but he did kind of introduce a new way of filming music mm. um, and filming dance which is really great and it did influence people like Prince maybe Um. later on or um, other musicians who made their uh, music videos so uh, but yeah no I do understand that it is slower but he did kind of imbue the film with some of the speed of the choreography Mm. um, which is interesting but why do you love it so much?
0: I I love the music
2: Uh
0: Uh, I love the look of it it's that kind of it's sort of the last hurrah of that Technicolor musical of the MGM films before we Began the inexorable slide towards Greece, uh, <laughs> and I just I just think the songs are incredibly catchy, and I love the actors, and I love the way it looks, and I love mm. that it's a fairly advanced discussion of race for mm. that time. That's like true. Puerto Ricans are singing about, oh yeah, we uh, we get discriminated against, and yeah, what else, what can you do? <laughs> uh, like it's just a matter of fact. It's not some big you know, oh, this, in this instance, there was a bad egg. Yeah. And discriminated. It's like, no, this is just our way of life.
2: Yeah. And I, I haven't seen the stage show, so I don't know whether it was that straightforward in, in the stage show but that's i mean that's a very wise kind of quality mm-hmm. i remember when he you know when he talked about how he was going to present this musical cuz he'd never made a full blown musical so he was like i'm really into realism and realist film how are people going to believe that people are just going to burst into song on the street when my style is very realist but maybe it's there in the the delivery of the songs and the you know the dancing and the characterizations and stuff rather than in the the Visual style. I mean, sound music was is is really interesting and has come up against a lot of criticism because it's you know it sugarcoats the Nazis um, in the '30s and it's you know was not entirely accurate. But historical accuracy, as we know, is not always a benchmark for understanding a film. Um, I mean, I just think it's great. It kind of suggests that Austria is this little fantasy land, this Mm. fairy, fairy world. But, you know, the opening credits and that song, the hills presenting them visually and having Maria, and having Maria played by Julie Andrews, who is just so charming and magical. But, like, obviously she's not not Maria von Trapp (laughs) in any means. And so I think by removing it from, like, its historical kind of place, it just is a really wonderful film. And it was. It was a big, big hit, made a lot Mm. of money. And then no one wanted to see musicals anymore. And I think that was one reason why Star failed.
0: Yeah, they were, try, they were trying to bring people back to the musical. and so Yeah, then...
2: and I mean, Star wasn't the only musical that failed um, mm. in the wake of The Sound of Music. But it, it's just, it's such a great film. And, you know, as I said, I watched it as a kid. You did, Lee, I'm sure we all did. Well, we watched it, you know, we are at least aware of it. So it's pretty special.
1: I love The Sound of Music. It was one of the very few films I was allowed to watch as a child (laughs) and I watched it over and over again and I think the music's just beautiful and the the children and the love story. It's
2: amazing to think that we watched it so often as children and I didn't know it was two and a half hours long Mm. and I have no memory of spending that long watching it but clearly we did mm. yeah and you know we loved it anyway
1: I tried to show it to my son last year and he switched off halfway through oh. and said too much singing
2: <laughs> 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 oh, times dear. have changed well, that is the problem with musicals I find. <laughs> um but yeah it's it's great and we talked about Christopher Plummer he's very handsome yeah. he's very handsome mm-hmm. mm. um so yeah it's just it's, it's quite nice yeah, so Robert Wise should be remembered for more than just West Side Story and The Sound of Music, but they are obviously great and we all seem to love them. Oh, well, maybe not West Side Story and Michelle. Maybe cut <laughs> that line. Um, I don't want to seem like I'm um, no, you lessening can, you your... You can speak for us all. There's <laughs> about 38 other films you can go and check out.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, if, if you are a fan of those films already, I mean, if you're not, go and watch them. If you are, go watch, you know the setup and um, Audrey Rose Audrey Rose yeah Game of Death.
2: Every one of his films is available on DVD some out of print I think but somehow available except for Two Lovers which was made in 1973 it didn't do well and it was pulled from um, circulation very quickly and it's not on DVD I don't think but everything else is so yeah very available filmmaker
0: Eloise thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you so much for having me I will talk about Robert Wise anytime.
0: And we'll see the rest of you next month.
2: Bye bye. Buying a credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will
0: you have though to keep clean? <laughs> Skyscrapers bloom in America. lot zoom in America. Industry boom in America. Wealth in a room in America.